Welcome to WexCast, the podcast of the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for the Wex. As our film video studio curator Jennifer Lang notes in the following conversation, it's been the month of Rodney at the Wex. Filmmaker Rodney Evans has been the featured artist in the box this month, and his documentary short, Persistence of Vision, remains on view through August 31st. This week, Rodney's also the opening night filmmaker for the Columbus Black International Film Festival, which will present his 2004 feature, Brother to Brother. And Rodney's been spending time in the film video studio working on his new feature documentary, Vision Portraits. Like Persistence of Vision, the work focuses on artists who are losing their sight, and Rodney is one of the subjects featured in it. For this WexCast, Rodney, Jennifer, and film video studio editor Alexis McCrimmon, a former student of Rodney's, discuss the new film and the past connections between the Wex and Rodney's work. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Jennifer Lang, and I'm the curator of the film video studio here at the Wexner Center for the Arts, and I have with me today filmmaker Rodney Evans and editor, new editor, as of January, in the film video studio, Alexis McCrimmon. And we're going to have a conversation just about um, Rodney is working in residence this month. This is like the month of Rodney. Yes. It is. Which I'm enjoying. Which is really, really (laughs) cool, actually. Um, We're doing post-production on a new documentary. We are showing... sort of the the genesis of that documentary, a short that led into the documentary Mm -hmm. in the box this month. And we're also going back to 2003 to show a work that you made, um, narrative feature, Brother to Brother. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting to me how much the the studio program, the history of the program is really, really interesting. And I'm going to totally date myself here. But you were, unknowingly, my very first artist in residence. Yes. Back in 2001. I started November 7th, 2001, and the first thing that I did was receive an Aton film camera, 16-millimeter film camera, that we had lent to your producer, Seth Carmichael, mm-hmm. for the shooting of Brother to Brother. Yeah, that, which, which is great, because I didn't actually realize that that's where the camera came from, but we had so little money, and it was such a micro-budget feature, and to be honest, I we really did a lot of things that a lot of producers would consider suicidal in that we started shooting before we had all of the money in the bank. And so we started shooting with $60,000 in the bank. And I just said, we are going to start and we're going to get as far as we can get. And um, and so that Aton camera package was incredibly helpful in terms of us getting the initial six days of production completed Mm -hmm. um, when we did. And that's what we used for the better part of the next year. Um, So that was in November of 2001. And then we shut down after six days and then literally came back up a year later, Mm -hmm. day seven, um, you know, People had cut their hair, hair (laughs) extensions needed to be added, people went to the gym, I was like, that body is not looking like it did, (laughs) we have to stop hitting the gym so hard, (laughs) Anthony Mackie, so some adjustments needed to be made. But But it all worked out, and the film premiered at Sundance. Yes. And the rest is history. It's true. It's really exciting for me to finally uh, be showing that film. Yeah. Which um, will open the Columbus Black International Film Festival. Also. Right, right. No, I'm excited uh, to be showing it here and um, to have it be part of this month-long residency. Yeah, 
And another sort of confluence of like what a small world this is, is that Alexis is actually a former student of yours at Temple. Yes, I, I taught at Temple um, from 2010 to 2014, and uh, I taught uh, both uh, undergraduate um, production class that was kind of the capstone class. So Alexis was my um, teaching assistant for that class. And I also taught a class with the ominous title, Advanced Problems in Film and Video. Oh, my. Which was... How was that, Alexis? <laughs> I was actually spending this morning trying to remember uh, my time in Advanced Problems. Um, and we watched a lot of great, a lot of amazing films. Um, I think I received... I received a lot of great feedback, but I also remember there were some challenging times in terms of, you know, screening in front of my peers, but hence the name Advanced Problems in Film and, and Video. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm sort of bummed out that I didn't get to actually take any other courses from you, um, because I think you were also on my thesis committee, which is yes. kind of a big deal for me personally. Um, and now you're doing color correction. Yes, I'm color correcting Vision Portraits, um, your newest film, documentary yeah. film. And it's been a pleasure. Um, I feel like I'm doing my part to add to the already beautiful imagery that's there um, in front of me. And um, it's been an amazing journey. It's nice to hear the story before it breaks. So I feel like I'm being let in on something, mm-hmm. you know, something big before it breaks. Um, it's been really fun. We've been listening to the uh, official soundtrack from uh, the TV show Pose today, which has oh, been yeah. really fun. Talking about Pose yesterday. Yeah. Um, and some dance breaks. Yeah, getting down to some Diana Ross um, <laughs> and some Sylvester, which is essential. Um, so, yeah. And I, and I think the first time, actually, um, speaking back to Brother to Brother, that I ever encountered that title and was curious and then sort of acted on a curiosity was I was living in uh, Northern uh, California in Oakland, in North Oakland. And I remember I was leaving my job at uh, the Berkeley uh, Community Media, the cable access station, and I was walking down Shattuck and I saw in Calif- at the California cinemas off Shattuck, Brother to Brother. And I saw the poster, and I thought, "What?" This is before you went to film school. Yes, this yeah. is. I was in my undergrad, and I was doing um, a co-op. Uh, I went to Antioch College for undergrad, so we had a cooperative education program. I was on my co-op, and I made it a point just to see any movie um, that I could between the United Artists Cinema. There were like it was a one, two, three, four theaters within like a one block radius of one another on Shattuck, and they each kind of had a different kind of point of view. Um, And the California um, was very much the art house indie. And I remember seeing this, like, brother to brother, like, black man on the the poster, and thinking, like, what is this film? And, like, hmm, and didn't even bother to get on the internet and try to look it up. I just thought, well, I'll go see that, like, on Saturday. Oh, wow. And Hmm. I went. Amazing. And... It was an amazing experience because I had seen a fair share of sort of independent films and 
wasn't necessarily feeling it, if you will. And here was the story, and even though, you know, I'm not a queer black man, I'm a queer black woman, but I really found myself identifying with the character and looking at Anthony Mackie's character and dealing where he was in his present and finding mentorship in an elder and it was just something so like okay this is something that I you know could do and even if you know my filmmaker's voice is more in documentary and experimental it was like this is something that I can do so then years later having the opportunity of meeting Rodney and teaching under him and having him you know help me in advanced problems um, was really wonderful so it is sort of I don't know, serendipitous that, you know, we're all kind of connected in this way and that I'm here. Yeah. You know, color correcting your film. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been it's been a great um reunion. Yeah. And um I mean you know, I think that that's interesting to hear because I I remember distinctly seeing um films like Tongues Untied and looking for Langston in in college as an undergrad, and those films making me feel like um, it was possible to be a filmmaker and to actually represent my own experiences in an authentic way. And so, so it's interesting to to feel like that brother to brother could be a part of kind of passing the torch, or you know empowering other filmmakers to feel like they had a voice and um, and wanted to pursue filmmaking as a career. And I don't know, it's just, an, it's great, inspiring to hear that and it could do that. Alexis, you bringing up documentary, thinking about Rodney's practice. I mean, you're you're working, I mean, it's not one, one-to-one, but it almost is with, mm-hmm. in documentary and sort of feature narrative or short narrative work. Yeah. Um, can you kind of, talk about how those two processes of storytelling um, feed into each other? Yeah, I mean, I think just on a very practical level, I think that um, they just balance each other really, really, really well and, and just keep me sane, just literally in terms of what it takes to get um fiction features off of the ground versus what it takes to get documentary projects off of the ground, just in terms of just um, documentaries having a very kind of lean um, production apparatus. So, you know, most of Vision Portraits, which we're finishing up now, was shot with with a two-person crew, right? And so I would go with Sometimes it was a former student of mine. Uh, sometimes it was a close friend of mine who um, had done some documentary shooting but hadn't, didn't have extensive experience and wanted to get more experience shooting. So on some level, you're giving someone um, a leg up in that you're giving them experience that they need to kind of further advance their career. But, it, you know, it literally is saying, like, okay, on Wednesday... We're going to go to John Dugdale's studio. We are going to talk about some of his photographs. Um, he's going to tell us the story behind some of these photographs. He's going to show us around his studio. It's going to take five hours. We're going to start the movie on Wednesday. Boom. I have a few hundred dollars in, in 
the bank for production and we can just go take it as it comes and just go step by step. Where with fiction, I feel like there's everything just needs to like be aligned and you have to have all of the money before you start production, although I didn't, didn't do that. <laughs> and you have to navigate all of the agencies in order to get the script to actors and you have to uh, you know so there's just it feels like really just this this whirlwind of activity to get to this place where you're ready to make the film and I find that the it just feels I mean the word that comes to mind is like sclerotic like it really just feels like there are just um, so many things that slow down the flow that for me, just picking up a camera, n- knowing that I'm really engaged with the topic and the person that I'm going to see, focusing on the conversation that we're having and the experience that we're having, and just like kind of slowly building footage over the course of four years, it just makes it a much more kind of manageable mm-hmm. process and you can kind of raise money and edit as you go and people can see what you're doing. And so there, there are ample opportunities for people, for, you know, grant makers and financiers to kind of enter into the process. So for on some level, I, I just think it like, in, you know, instead of keeping all of your eggs in one basket, it kind of it keeps me sane just to kind of be productive and, you know, while I'm, you know, working on the process of developing and casting my next fiction feature, which is called Daydream, um, I'm, you know, I've been doing this documentary in in a very small way for four years. Mm -hmm. And so... It's a way to, to kind of keep making work, but it's also, I feel like even my fiction films are like steeped in reality and it's usually totally. one person that I become obsessed with and I go down the rabbit hole and I do the research as part of the screenwriting process, mm-hmm. but it's still very much steeped in a documentary research practice and process. And so, you know, even with Brother to Brother, I, um, you know, I, I got 25 hours of audio tape interviews of Richard Bruce Nugent just talking about his life that the executor of his estate just handed to me. Wow. And so a lot of the, the film is based on just stories that he told, mm-hmm. like, in those interviews. And I so... You know, between that and reading biographies and reading um, their own fiction, thinly veiled fiction about their experiences, you know, you start to kind of form a picture of what their lives were like. And then I feel like it, it gives you enough information to start writing in a way where you feel like you can authentically capture mm-hmm. what their experiences were. So, you know, I definitely think that they're related. I think in fiction... Um, the research process comes out um, within the, the screenwriting and it's, it's kind of part and parcel of the screenwriting process. And in documentary, it's usually done, you know, either before the interviews or even, you know, as I'm 
in the process of shooting, I'm still kind of researching the topic and thinking about um, where things are going in the landscape of, of technology mm-hmm. and for this film, dealing with blindness and visual impairment, you know, um, where are things going in the future? What are um, newer types of clinical trials and um, possible medical breakthroughs? And how do you kind of trace that and connect that to other parts of the film? Mm-hmm. So that's something that's sort of happening as you're, you're making the film. So I don't know, I think just in general, they, they, they both are equally fulfilling, and I think that this, just certain films need to take certain forms. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting also that um, for Daydream and Vision Portraits, there are shorts that are sort of, I don't know if they're, um, well, Vision Portraits is obviously related to Persistence of Vision, which right. is from, what year is Persistence 2016. of Vision? 2016. Yeah. Um, and much of the footage is actually integrated into Vision Portraits. Yeah. Um, with Billy and Aaron, which is a short about Billy Strayhorn, yeah. the featured um, is also a story about Billy Strayhorn. Yes. Do those, is that mode of like making a short before a feature, is it really like, are you working out ideas? Or are, you, are you certain at the point you're making the short that, you're, that the feature is there in sight and you're working towards it and it's sort of a strategy for fundraising and kind of working out some creative ideas? Or is it like, I'm just making this short right now and then you're in the short and it's like, oh no, there's something, there's so much more here. No, it's usually the feature is done and it's usually part of, um, with fiction, it's usually part of the development process, you know? So um, in terms of Billy and Aaron, I did uh, a film directing lab at a place called the Binger Film Lab in Amsterdam. And as part of that lab, and, and I think as, as you know, in a lot of directing labs in general, they usually um, will give you access to professional actors and a small crew, and you'll be asked to shoot scenes from your feature-length script as a way of kind of training and getting your head around the material and really kind of honing in on the important elements of the story, et cetera. So, I, I mean, maybe it's just part of my nature to kind of think of everything as um, as an opportunity for real filmmaking as opposed to an exercise, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. you know? And so I was like, if I'm going to shoot parts of this, this feature-length script, like, I'm going to figure out a way to have something that's self-contained, mm-hmm. that stands alone, that tests certain elements of the screenplay. So with Daydream, there's um, a lot of live singing and and performance and a lot of what um, I feel like goes unsaid in the dialogue um, comes out through the music. So I, I was definitely interested in kind of live musical performance and like testing that as a strategy and how that would work. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so I just pulled, you know, a 10-minute excerpt, um, and it actually involved, like, stitching different parts of the the feature-length script together. There was no kind of, like, self-contained excerpt, so I actually pulled 
different sections and put them together to form this this self-contained short. And then with uh, persistence of vision, um, that just came that that really happened in the editing process. I I had gotten a residency in the summer of um, 2015, and I just started with John's section. And just, you know, it was a very long interview. It was a three and a half hour interview that I um, whittled down to 12 minutes. And so that was a really um, huge undertaking for me. And and just, um, you know, telling a lot of the story or his story through his photographs, I think was, was um, part of the challenge of it. And then I just think... Um, at the end of that summer, I just liked the way that it worked on its own. Mm-hmm. And I just decided that I would, I would just start sending it out um, as a short and, um, and that the short would only kind of build momentum right. for the feature. But I can't say that it was like some, you know, thought out strategy that I had beforehand. Like it was just in the making of it where I was just like, I I like the way that this works on its own. And I think it's like impactful and powerful. And, um, and, you know, I'm just going to kind of send it out into the world and see how people respond to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, do you want to talk a little bit more about, since we're on persistence of vision and vision portraits, maybe the genesis of that project and then your personal relationship to it and you sure. as a character in it. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, vision portraits started in... I mean, I, I think that I'd been thinking about it for a, a really long time just as someone who is visually impaired. So I have a condition called retinitis pigmentosa, which um, basically... Um, means that I have no peripheral vision and that I have very minimal night vision. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and that's that was diagnosed in uh, late 1996. So it was really, like, right after I got out of, of graduate school. And um, it's not curable, but there, there are different strains of it. So um, luckily, I have a strain that... Um, where you lose a portion of your vision and then it seems to kind of plateau for a really long time and then um, there'll be some continued deterioration over the course of years. But, you know, you sort of maintain your central vision. Um, but, it, you know, it's always been an issue in terms of of making films, of, you know, even making Brother to Brother and my second feature, The Happy Sad, of just working with crews and letting them know that I'm visually impaired and that I'm going to need a clear pathway to the actors. Mm-hmm. If you hand me um, a script supervisor notebook, I might not see it. So I'm just going to put that on the table on day one, pre-production meeting, like I'm visually impaired. This is how I see um I don't, there's no shade. I'm not trying to like 
be like a diva or disrespectful in any way. Like I literally don't see you handing me this notebook mm-hmm. or this monitor. And sometimes you might need to say, hey, Rodney, I put the monitor to the left of you. And um, and you got a clear shot to the actors. And so literally was just like letting people know what I needed in order to get the work done. And so that's definitely just been part of my practice. And, um, and then, you know, I think as it started to get um, a little bit worse after the happy sad, I just started to think about um, what would actually happen if I lost my vision completely. Like, how would I continue to make work? Um, how do artists um, who once had vision and then gradually lose it, how do they make work? How are they functioning artists? Like, what kind of strategies do they use to cope? What, what kind of methods do they use to kind of overcome the obstacles that come with, with being a blind artist? So on some level, it was like me facing this, like, very, um, you know, this, like, ultimate fear Mm-hmm. of, like, what could happen, right? And so, I don't know. I just I just have this way of confronting fears, like, head-on instead of, like, not trying not to think about it, which is, like, um, some people in my family have that way of dealing with things. It's like, oh, that's dark and depressing. I don't want to think about it. La, 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 la. My thing is, like, oh, I'm going to go directly there, and I'm going to go deep, into that and I'm gonna like learn as I go and come out the other side with knowledge and and film and mm-hmm. I'm gonna kind of grapple with it as I'm as I'm making making the film so um was John the first artist who you identified as the yes, subject yes he was the first person who I who I thought about because I had, I remembered his photographs. My brother's best friend, Daryl, had dated John for, I think, probably like 12 years. So we had met like once or twice, okay. just socially, but I was very young. Um, and uh, yeah, I just remember really being taken with his, his photographs. And so I asked my brother if he would call John, and John never responded. And then, um, and then Daryl stepped in. <laughs> and then, um, so you know, there were some some hoops I had to jump through. And so John wanted to have lunch, and we had lunch, and he wanted to see some films of mine and talk about the films that I was showing him. And and then then he agreed to um, to be in the film. Mm-hmm. So I think it helped that um, that he knew that he was just going to be a portion of the film, and that he knew that I was visually impaired, and that I was dealing with this process of vision loss. And I think um, he had always told himself that um, that he would always share his experience with people that were undergoing that kind of vision loss. And, you know, and I just think he has a certain kind of resilience and optimism mm-hmm. that, um, that he wants to share, you know, and that, it, that for him it's not, it's not 
doom and gloom and it's, it hasn't been this kind of, um, you know, this dark death sentence in terms of his art practice, but it's just been... The opposite, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not been... a completely different way of... Exactly. ...direction to take and different way of working yeah. that's been incredibly successful. Exactly. So it is really, it's inspiring and... Um, He's a definitely a good example. Um, so I don't know the other characters in the film because I haven't watched the whole film. But <laughs> yeah. someone over here is what I love a, a lot about Alexis is that you know she really dives deep into projects. And I think it was within like two days of getting a drive, I knew some of the names because you were very fluently like talking about this person and this person and this person. So um, who are the other characters in the film? Maybe Alexis could. Yeah. Do you want to talk about them? <laughs> you can. I mean, you've been spending time you looking at them. So much time. Making them pretty. <laughs> and there's Kayla Hamilton. Yes. Who is a dancer, and I don't know if she's a choreographer as well, or if she. She would call herself a movement artist. Right. Mm-hmm. I would. I would agree with that as well. Yeah. Dancer, movement artist, um, based in New York. Yes. Is everyone based in New York? No. no. Um, Ryan Knighton, who's a writer, is uh, is actually based in Vancouver, okay. Canada. Okay. Yeah, so for me it was, you know, um, just to talk a little bit about how I got connected with the characters. Like, Ryan was was um, a f- already a friend of mine, actually. So he's, like, he's the one person that I did already know. Mm-hmm. And he has the same condition I have called retinitis pigmentosa, but... Um, he has a, a very different strain that progressed quite rapidly. And so he was diagnosed at 18. And I, I, you know, I think within probably five to seven years, he had lost a very significant portion of his, of his vision. And I would say within 10 years, he you know, had probably lost... 90 to 95% of his vision. Um, but, but he had written this memoir called Cockeyed about growing up as this like punk rock teenager who was diagnosed you know, with this condition who was losing his, his sight and finding salvation through, through writing. And, um, and I, honestly, like I, I fell in love with his book. And I had applied to the Sundance um, screenwriting lab. And I think I'd gotten to the second round, but I didn't make it into the finals. And then I was looking at the list of projects that had gotten into the lab, and I saw cockeyed Ryan Knighton. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I'm reading that as a memoir, but it's a screenplay. And then... um, I asked uh, Michelle Satter, who uh, runs the uh, artist labs at Sundance, if there was a director attached to this screenplay adaptation of Ryan's memoir, and she said no, and that. Um, and so I told her that I had the same condition and that I was interested in meeting him. And so she was kind enough to give me his contact information, and um, and so when he came to New York, we just met up and. And um, and we just got along really really well. He's just he's just quite he's really funny actually, <laughs> and so we just laughed a lot. And um, we met up with another friend of his, um, 
who's also a writer with retinitis pigmentosa. And so we went to a bar, and it was just funny. It was just, you know, it's like three blind guys walk into a bar. (laughs) (laughs) um, And so, so, you know, it was great, because that... That film never got made, but when I started to think about this documentary, I called him up, and he, you know, he had all of these ideas, and you know, was was um, very much up on the latest technology and the latest trials, and so you know, we had a, a very lengthy conversation about um, different different roads that I could go down, and so I just. Um, Right after I shot John, I think probably a month later, I flew out to Vancouver and spent three days with Ryan and observed him teaching, his writing class, and, uh, you know, just spending time with him at home and in his neighborhood and just talking about his daily writing practice in this cafe and just sort of when he just sort of felt comfortable in his skin as a kind of writer dealing with blindness, but, you know, not necessarily having it be the topic that he was writing about, but, you know, not being afraid of kind of embracing that as a, as a perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and getting assigned these kind of short pieces for a website and, and that, kind of slowly building this muscle where um, his his writing was coming out with this kind of comic edge to it. And so I think a lot of those pieces became um, the base for what then um, would evolve into yeah, his first memoir, mm-hmm. Cockeyed. Mm-hmm. So Ryan, Kayla, Ryan is a writer, Kayla's... A dancer. A dancer, movement Mo- artist. Yes. Um, John photographer yeah and so Kayla was really great because because I I had basically um didn't want to make a movie with only men and I just made it very clear that I didn't and so I just like put that out in the world and for some reason dance as a visually impaired person just seemed it just seemed really brave to me yeah to be like wow like your art is like navigating space and like you know what, like, and like you're visually impaired, so you have the capacity to kind of to really hurt yourself. You know what I mean? Like you're, it's like you are, um, like navigating space is is the art form, and so literally, like, how do you do that? Like, how do you keep in sync with other dancers? Is that part of your practice? If so, how? Like, um. Just I just became really interested in that because it did feel, it, it did feel like um, different in a way because I felt like the rest of us could hide behind equipment or we just had our, our like shields, you know, where she was just using her body, right? And her body was like her instrument, right? And so it was like, hey, if I don't see something and I trip and I fall down, that's like part of the practice, like it's that's gonna happen, and I'm gonna just have to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I you know I specifically wanted um, a woman, and I wanted a woman of color, and I just put that out in the world, and someone, um, a mutual friend, introduced us 
and I met her for breakfast, and um, we just instantly connected. And it just so happened that she was um, working on this dance piece called Nearly Sighted. That was the first time that she was ever had ever dealt with being visually impaired in her in her dance practice, mm-hmm. and and um, it was literally about to go up the next weekend, and. And I asked her if I could shoot her in rehearsal, if I could shoot the the first performance, and she was yes, like yes, by all means, like come to. So she um, premiered at this at this place called Bad in the South Bronx, um, which is this great um, community arts organization that is um, very LGBT focused and very inclusive and. Um, so yeah, we just had an immediate and amazing connection and it just was like right time to connect. She's like, I'm doing this thing. I've been working on it for three years. It's going up now. Like things are going on now. Like get your camera. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, so I was working, you know, with a, with a cinematographer um, who's a very dear friend of mine that I met at, an, at another residency. So it helps to go to do all these residencies because <laughs> yeah. you meet collaborators. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, Kirsten Rossi is this amazing experimental filmmaker, but also an incredible um, cinematographer and editor. And so she um, just wanted more practice shooting documentaries and was really interested in the, in the project and did some additional editing on persistence of vision and, um, you know, and, and I ended up moving three blocks away from her. So that was really convenient. And, <laughs> and so, so we just, you know, we shot everything with two cameras. We had two C100s, two Canon C100s. Um, I would do a lot of things on tripod and, um, uh, a lot of things kind of locked off and um, and kind of wider shots, and she would really go in and like move with Kayla with the camera, you know, and and shoot through mirrors and just get kind of different sort of abstracted mm-hmm. types of footage. So um, so yeah, and then in terms of my being a character in the film, it was really integral to have someone like Kirsten who was also a director who could, who could, who could then um, interview me about my process filming the other subjects and where I was at. And so I didn't want any of the voiceover to feel written at all. Like, I actually wanted it just to feel um, incredibly conversational and low-key. So all of the voiceover comes from these um, conversations between Kirsten and myself, for the most part. And, um, and then I went to do um, a medical treatment in Berlin at this place called the Center for Vision Restoration. So um, that's a place that does um, a lot of neuro-ophthalmology. So they actually send um, low-level electricity to your brain to actually like reactivate retinal cells and they've actually had a lot of success um, with both retinitis pigmentosa and glaucoma and so um, so Kirsten came out there for um, 11 days and they were gracious enough to just let us shoot all of the procedures and the process and 
Um, and then somehow I knew that that was going to be the end of the film and, um, and that I was going to be a bigger character than I, than I thought I was going to be. <laughs> well, it's, it, it's interesting to hear about the process of making the film, but I'm also I'm curious about you as an artist presenting your film and thinking in a different way maybe about the audience for your film. Yeah. And, and how... Um, is there anything you've changed with this film and specifically and how it will um, either be released or, or um, how you're making it accessible or if that's even, if that's a question. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge question. And so, I mean, I, I think the two key things for me in terms of that question was I decided to um, bring on an additional editor, uh, an editor named Hannah Buck, who... Um, is is a brilliant editor and it, and it, and it had a, a, a specific extensive experience working with filmmakers who were the central subjects in their films. Mm-hmm. So she edited a film uh, called Memories of a Penitent Heart by Cecilia Alderondo, and she also edited um, an oversimplification of her beauty by Terence Nance, and so. So she she, she kind of knew how to work with filmmakers who were the subjects of their films, or you know somehow um, centrally integral to the the actual material of the film. And so just m- meeting Hannah, and I think that was another thing that was just kind of faded. It was it was I met Cecilia probably the weekend before. I was going to a residency, and um, it was a residency at McDowell, and Cecilia basically was like, oh, I love McDowell. Like, I edited my film at McDowell. Um, like, like that is, it's, it's heaven. Like, you know, like, it, it, it's so great. And I was like, great, you should send me, like, a link to your film, and I can screen it there, and, like, it'll, it'll just be, like, this full, like you know, 360, like, you know, you edit it and then I'll, then we'll have a screening. And so she sent me the link and I was just like kind of blown away by it and specifically blown away by the editing. And then um, McDowell has these kind of, these like tombstones on the wall where everyone that's been in your studio yeah. signs signs the tombstone. And so I look up and on the tombstone that's, like, in front of my desk, it says, like, Hannah Buck, like, 2014. And I was like, oh, Hannah was in this studio. Interesting. Mm. This editor who obviously is incredibly talented because that film, specifically the editing, was just, like, stunning to me. And so Cecilia gave me her contact information. We met. She asked if she could just, like, take the drive and, like, go through the material for a week we had a really long conversations. So she became like a real creative partner. And, um, you know, I was still editing. And so I put together the first assembly. We knew that my story was going to be kind of interwoven within the other chapters. But I think she was really um, incredible about just kind of pushing what those interstitial chapters were going to be. Mm-hmm and kind of making sure that, like, I was in conversation with the other artists and that I was somehow, like, responding to what they had had said previously and that it felt 
cohesive and unified as opposed to this kind of um, fragmented piece that that you know that was harder to sustain over the course of a of a feature length. So um, so she just asked the, the the smart tough questions and and I would respond and kind of come back with different writing ideas and Kirsten and I would keep shooting so we would shoot abstract footage and so it was key to just have an objective eye that literally was not mine that could could stand in for the viewer and to be like you know I think like this is the point where the viewer needs to really understand how you see the world and we need to represent that on screen so I'm going to put this like mat on the screen that kind of represents your perspective and you can tell me what you think, like if, it, if you think it works. Like it was just this kind of experimentation and this flow that kind of happened between us. And then just in terms of like um, accessibility, it's the first time that I've done what's called audio description, which is literally like... Um, someone comes in and translates moving imagery into writing, into words. And so um, I just worked with um, an amazing audio description writer and vocalist named Aaron DeWard, who, um, who just did an amazing audio description track. And so that is specifically for um, visually impaired and blind audiences Mm -hmm. so that they um, will be able to experience the movie and have as much um, information about the visuals as possible. Mm -hmm. And that will be, that's for theatrical release as well as for DVD or just for DVDs? um, You know, that's a great question because I would be completely open to having certain screenings have that option. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like like you know, closed captioning right. for certain um, for certain screenings. But yeah, I mean, I think that that would be really easy to set up. But this is like literally like a new new terrain. Yeah. yeah. And and Aaron was really kind of on the ground floor in terms of this audio description practice becoming more common. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and she literally was describing that it was a response to. Daredevil on Netflix not being audio described and and the fact that it's a superhero who's blind and wow. they were like how could you do that like that's right there's seems that seems ob- yeah like obvious. you need to think about that right. and and so they responded really swiftly and um and really thoroughly and they were like if we're going to do this for Daredevil we're going to do this for everything and so they pretty much like are are doing a hell of a lot of audio description. So I would say like the larger percentage of their material has audio description. So she's done a lot of work with them. And so it's good on them for for responding in that kind of um, full way of just taking it on. So I think a lot of places have watched them take the lead and then felt pressure to kind of follow their lead and do, yeah, so... So I think theatrical would be the, the next logical step, but I don't think that anyone's done it. Let's lighten it up a little bit. What are you watching on TV? What am I watching? 
I'm watching. Do you think I know what you're watching on TV because we talked about it yesterday? Well, maybe. no, I'm watching <laughs> some different things. But right now, I'm watching Random Acts of Flyness, which is Terrence Nance's show mm-hmm. on on HBO, which is incredible and so refreshing and. I don't know. It's just for me. It's a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Just um, and um, yeah, I've been watching Pose, which Pose, we talked about. Yes. <laughs> um, Alexis, what about you? I need to renew my HBO subscription. I can't. Am I actually actively watching these current series right now? I do. But you're a binger, right? Binger. So you yeah. will go back Un- and. Like, unfortunately, I'm a binger. So are you binging anything? You just binged. Planet of the Apes. Yes, I, I know that. I just watched all uh, five original Planet of the Apes films. Wow. Um, three, Escape from, and four, uh, Conquest being my favorites of the series. Um, I also have two, uh, Beneath, two, uh, has a soft spot in my heart. <laughs> but yeah, and... Uh, when were those made? Sixties, oh, sixty, late sixties to um, like maybe seventy five. Okay. Seventy six being the latest. And Charlton Heston is just in the. He is in the first film and is just in the, the second, but uh, you start with him, he dips out for a moment, and he returns in the third act. So. Okay. Yeah. Taylor. Um, I'm curious how it how, how does it um, compare to the the recent incarnations. I've actually not watched. Oh, you haven't. And um, so you just I, binge. But <laughs> but I'm actually excited too um, because apparently the first uh, reboot with Andy Serkis and James Franco is a kind of um, retelling of uh, Conquest, which um, is politically a very interesting film. So I would I would like to revisit that world in a more contemporary setting. So I think I might start watching those. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you guys actually funded or worked with um, this artist, Leah Gilliam, right? Who had done this yeah. piece called Ape Shit. A long time ago. That I actually remember seeing and that, you know... Um, her reappropriation of that that um, Planet of the Apes material was mm-hmm. really integral to that that yeah, I'm piece. I remember what year the piece is called Ape Ship. Yeah, and maybe in the 90s. yeah, like late nineties. It was before two, before my time, before two thousand and one. And interestingly enough, her dad is Sam Gilliam, who's in our galleries right now. Ella in, in the exhibition Inherent Structure. Oh, okay. Little known fact. <laughs> it all ties together here at the Wexner Center. Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> all roads lead to the Wex. <laughs> um, anyway, maybe that's a good point to uh, wrap things up. Thank you very much, Rodney, and thank you, Alexis, for you. for taking some time away from the edit. And um, best of luck with the with the edit. And and viewers, at some point in the future, I am confident we'll be able to see vision portraits here at the Wex. Yes. TBD date. Date yes. to be determined. Yes, would love to bring it. So we'll make it happen. Thanks for listening to WexCast. For more information about the Wexner Center for the Arts and our programming, go to wexarts.org.